Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas everybody. Yay. Merry Christmas. Yay. Ho, ho, ho. Oh, if maybe you're preparing lunch or maybe you're listening to this drunk out of your mind <laughs> <laughs> at about five o'clock, Bailey's to hand. Yeah. I've yeah. got a little glass of Bailey's just here. Just Excellent. To Is it in a shoe ease. or in a glass? Just yeah. Oh, it's a <laughs> shoe. That would be good. If you saw me swig, if you could see me on Riverside, just swigging gently from a shoe throughout this recording. Uh, that would be okay. So obviously it's not really Christmas Day, is it? We, we haven't taken time out of our busy schedules to uh, record this. Although people did say that. Do you remember the first time we did this? Yeah. Amazing that so you managed nice to do it on Christmas on Day. Christmas. Yeah. We thought so too, but the illusion the magical illusion of podcasting <laughs> anyway una where are you spending this christmas day i am spending christmas day uh where i've spent the rest of the year which is in cambridge lovely cambridge so i am at home with my other half of my nine-year-old so ideal christmas individual yeah uh, your uh nine-year-old who's an anonymity we wish to protect is has become a superstar via <laughs> backlisted because it was thanks to her she read the extract from Time for Lights Out by the late Raymond Briggs. She when did we did it, when she did. She yeah. was brilliant. All prepared for uh, when she had to read a poem out in class this uh, term as well. So she was straight in there with uh, <laughs> Raymond <laughs> did, Briggs. Did she read that poem? <laughs> she did that and some Roger McGough. Did she? Yeah. She's yeah. taking it out on the road. That's very good. <laughs> Gigging. Yeah. Great. Okay, so you're in Cambridge. Uh, Tanya, where will you be? I will be in my house in Brighton uh, with my husband and my two house rabbits and hopefully my parents who are coming to stay. Oh, that's nice. Brighton Christmas. People go swimming in the sea. Is it one of those places? Uh, yeah, they do, but I do not. <laughs> that used to be con considered a complete madness, didn't it? Only the most eccentric people, but now it's it's become a definite thing. It's supposed to be very good for your no, mental health, apparently. Yeah, mental health uh, and good for your yeah. weight and your metabolism, all kinds yeah. of things. Oh, it's all propaganda. Shut <laughs> <up>. <laughs> Absolute balls. <laughs> anyway, uh, John Mitchinson, where will you be spending Christmas Day? I should be gathered with my family around the table of uh, Great Chew in Oxfordshire, roaring log fire, a, a glistening bird of some kind on the table. Jugs of mulled cider, I should imagine. Yeah, just kind of, you know, the usual, the usual. Pigs in blankets. Yes, what the mother. Actual the, pigs. The nation's favorite Actual pigs, pigs in, in actual blankets. blankets. <laughs> but not in the house. And uh, Nikki Birch, we need somebody uh, in this backlisted grouping to be somewhere in London. Will you be in London this Christmas? Not I. <gasps> I'm afraid I will not. I will be in North Cornwall. Oh. I may even... With a wetsuit, get in the water. Oh, that's as close as I will get. Good for you. Good for yeah. you, Nikki. With a wetsuit is okay. I will sanction that. Thank you. That's all right. No, you're welcome. What about you, Andy? <laughs> what, what's the plans? Oh, I'll be, I'll be home. I'll be home Lovely. in uh, Kent. I'm quite looking forward to Christmas Day. But you've got exciting news post-Christmas, haven't you? Yes. <laughs> I'm going to see Abba Voyage. And, uh, <gasps> at last. It's taken me nearly a year to get there. Imagine, I'm going to be losing my mind, listeners, <laughs> so to, that, to that particular <laughs> That's thing. Great. Well, I tell you what, imagine this. I got dance floor tickets. Watch out, everybody, Ooh. if you're going on a particular oh day. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> okay, John, take us in. Hello. And welcome to a special Christmas edition of Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. Today, you find us in a rambling terraced house in London's Cromwell Road, sometime in the early 1930s. 
it's Christmas Day and we're watching three young girls admire a Christmas tree. All three are wearing the same style of woolen jumper finished with fluffy rabbit fur around the collar and cuffs. The tallest with blonde curls in blue, the middle with straight brown hair in orange and the smallest with striking red hair in pink. The fir tree in front of them is like nothing they've ever seen. Each branch has been covered in glittering frost, transforming the whole room into something magical. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound, the platform where readers crowdfund books they really want to read. And I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. And on this special day, we're joined by two friends of the show, reunited to celebrate Christmas Day, as we hope they would be. A special seasonal welcome to Una McCormack, and Tanya Kirk, hello. Hey, hello. Hello. Happy Christmas. Happy to see you. <laughs> yes. Tanya is the lead curator of printed heritage collections, 1601 to 1900 at the British Library. And listen, everyone, when the quiz comes up later, I want you to remember what Tanya's job is. <laughs> Specifically no what her job is. No pressure, Tanya. No pressure. Previously, she joined us back in February for episode 155 on Winifred Holt's South Riding. A specialist in literary collections, she's co-curated six major exhibitions, including one on science fiction, another on Gothic literature plus Shakespeare and the British landscape in literature, and is currently working on one about fantasy, which will open in October 2023. She's also edited five collections of classic ghost stories taken from books and periodicals in the British Library for the series Tales of the Weird, and excellent they are too. And four of these are Christmas-themed, and the most recent, which came out two months ago, is called Haunters of the Hearth, Eerie Tales for Christmas Nights. Uh, so um, you've still got time to enjoy that before uh, the festive season expires. Tanya, I, I'm asking everybody today to nominate the book they most fondly remember receiving for Christmas when they were a child. Which book did you, were you most excited about receiving or, or surprised to receive, and then you just associate it with being able to slope off on Christmas afternoon and read it. So I had to consult with my mum because I was excited about a lot of books at Christmas. Uh, she has informed me that the one I was most excited about was uh, The Saga of Eric the Viking by Terry Jones, oh, uh, illustrated by Michael Terry. Foreman. That's such a great which, choice. I was kind of a bit little for reading it, but I remember the amazing illustrations and I I was really into Vikings around then. I've been to the Jorvik Viking Centre in York. Oh, haven't we all? Um, <laughs> 83, it was published originally. The, the 83, book. was it? Okay. Yeah, makes note. Una McCormack, welcome back. She's, Hello. She's making her eighth and record equaling appearance on Backlisted, <laughs> having previously joined us for episodes dedicated to Anita Bruckner, pow, Georgette Heyer, bang, <laughs> Russell Hoban, pow. J.R.R. Tolkien, Terence Dix, William Golding. Sounds a bit of an outlier, Golding, there in that <laughs> company. Is there nothing this woman cannot do? Eclectic is her middle name. She is also best selling writer of nearly two dozen science fiction novels based on TV shows such as Star Trek, Doctor Who, Firefly, and Blake's Seven. Her most recent books include The Autobiography of Mr. Spock and Star Trek Picard Second Self. She's on the editorial board for Gold SF, an imprint of Goldsmiths Press aimed at publishing new voices in intersectional feminist science fiction. And their first publications are Mathematics for Ladies by Jesse Randall and Empathy by Hoa Pham. Una, please hold up to the camera 
the, <laughs> the, the so, but also say what it is the for radio book, let me book, hold it up for radio the book you most fondly remember receiving so the, the book i most fondly remember receiving and this was propped up i think in front of a bike so that's how excited i must have been about this Amazing. about this book was comet in moominland by uh <gasps> Tove jansen and here's this edition the, uh, it says 1975 in the front, which which would mean that I was four when I got it. Um, so uh, and I just I, it was propped up there, and I can I have very bad visual imagination, but I can picture that bike and I can picture that book, and uh, yeah, that was the start of a of a lifelong affair. In the front of this is a lovely um, puffin book book plate. I know. So, I've um, got those. Yeah, oh, I've got those. Absolutely beautiful. With my no. sister's handwriting, because I was too little to write my own name. So, uh, so that's my book. Would you I have seen getting. Comet in Moominland on Jack and Nori? Do you think? Oh, yeah. oh goodness, I don't know. When was it done? Well, about then. About then. Those those mo- the Moomin the Moomin books partly owe their popularity in the UK for being great favourites of the producers of Jack and Nori. They Jack were, and Nori. They, they did about at least five of them, four or five of them, I think. That um, must have been where we got some then. But, uh, yeah, I, I mean, Jack and Ori was on, but I wouldn't remember. I must have been, what, three and a half, four, five. So, uh, but, yeah, that's probably the routine. So Comet in Moominland, and I still have it. It's covered in kind of plastic, sticky stuff as well. As so. you did, as you <laughs> used to do in those days. <laughs> she used to do, indeed. Is your daughter a big Moomin fan as well? Did you? Not really. No, she doesn't do books, because I do books. Oh, so look, she doesn't really so do books. already getting <laughs> yeah. back at you. Well done. <laughs> I'm going to go to Nikki Birch first. Nikki yes. Birch. Hello. This, let's explain to people why we're, we're doing this particular book this Christmas. Well, you're basically giving me a little Christmas present, the two of you, and I appreciate that. Um, the four of you even. So, yeah, when I was growing up, I read, but also listened to ballet shoes every single day as I went to bed. And when I might be playing, when I was wanting something calming, I probably listened to it every day for at least five years, maybe longer. <laughs> Some sort of ASMR kind of thing going on. Something here. like yeah. that. So this is a book that means so much to me because I know it so well. And funnily enough, I picked it up again to read it in preparation for this show. And I realized I really don't need to read it still. It's all up here. I know it all so well. Could you? If we just, but, um, if we just yeah. triggered you, you'd be able to yeah. start talking. I could actually verbalise it, exactly. Right. So, okay. I, you know, I vow to be on hand <laughs> to um, answer anything. And, and, but anyway, right. I'm really excited to hear what you guys have got to say well, about we, this. Okay. So, yeah. We'll get you to read from it as well. John, your, what was your book that you were most excited to receive as a child, Ballet Shoes as well, or was it something uh, different? I'm afraid it wasn't Ballet Shoes. Um, and it's it's it was I it was when I was seven and I still remember it. It was the Collins Field Guide to the Birds of Britain and Europe by Peterson oh. Mountfoot and Hollam. I can still remember. It was the most grown up thing I'd ever owned. I didn't I couldn't really understand a lot of the technical stuff in it, but I loved it was like, oh you're now I've now got the same book as grown up bird watchers, people who I would see at the hide with their binoculars and they'd have this magical book in their pockets and now I was one of the gang. It's basically all I've ever wanted to do is to fit in, Andy. And this was the t- my <laughs> ticket to fitting in. Did this. you tick them off as you saw them? Has it got little pencil I, I'm afraid I'm not a person who can make marks in books. Uh, yeah, know, quite right. But I quite did right. have a notebook from the RSPB or the Young Ornithologist Club, which had all the birds in, and I did used to tick that off, and I was that kind of child. Quite right. 
there was a survey done a few years ago which said that <laughs> quite, I've always wondered what, what the pretext of this survey was. <laughs> but they surveyed adults who'd been children in the 70s to say what was the most disappointing Christmas present of the 70s, right, if you were a child. Yeah. What failed to live? And uh, by a landslide, the winner was book tokens. I know. I know. I know. Screw you guys. That's what I'm saying. You know, we love book tokens. The best present. Yeah, right? They were the best present. My Auntie Joycey in Dundee would always send me a £10 book token. Isn't that great? Yeah. yeah. Well, they, they were surveying the Book Burners Association of. <laughs> <laughs> well, who would we be say? who would be bitterly opposed to the popularity of books? <laughs> uh, you know. 1980, the young Andy Miller is 12 years old. He asks for and receives uh, and reads over and over and over again, almost as much as Nicky Birch was listening to ballet shoes. <laughs> I was reading Roger Wilmot's From Fringe to Flying Circus. His history of all the Footlights comedy oh, people from beyond the fringe right the way through to 1980. And Nikki, I've got the same thing, Widley. I can quote enormous chunks of that book. I love That's those before books. this uh, female president, isn't it? 1980. They'd not had a female president by then, had they? That no, it's, 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 I mean, you know, it's horrendous thing. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> it's all, it's rank patriarchy and privilege, but, you know, it's yeah. fun. It's um, yeah. it's and funny let's but, be honest um, funny yeah that's funny as well no so that was that was mine i really like that kind of that period before you're quite a teenager the thing you're just talking yeah. about john before you're a teenager where you 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 are beginning to choose books that you think might appeal to you on a on an adult level but with a kind of pre-teen enthusiasm at the same time one of the books that i was looking forward to receiving at christmas was the Judy Bloom book Forever, which is famous for being the sex, sexy Judy Bloom book where they actually have sex. And, and my mum, I don't know if your parents used to do this, so we grew up in a flat, so there wasn't much sort of storage space. So there was always a present drawer where oh, if yeah. you were a teenager, Top you pretty much wardrobe. knew. But, yeah. You knew where the presents were, right? So I looked in there and saw that Forever <laughs> was in the present drawer. And then come Christmas Day, Forever never got passed on. Right. I never got it because I realized what happened. She'd read forever and decided 12 year old or 30 year old oh me was God, not ready, brilliant. not that's ready brilliant. for the sex wow. scene. So uh, oh that God. was a, a denied present. There's oh no way forever would have got into our Catholic house. That I mean, that would have <laughs> it would have burst into flames as it crossed the threshold, I think. Have you, when did you read Absolutely it? Banned. When did you read it? I probably read it out of the present drawer, literally, like, wow. Yeah, 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 okay, my, yeah. My brother, my brother did that one. He discovered where all the presents were. And I said, well, you can't. And he, then he had to, of course, tell me that, not only he had to tell me what I was getting for Christmas, which was deeply annoying. But then he had to keep dropping hints in family, you know, family meals, saying, oh, you know what I'd really like for Christmas this year is that. And then in the end, my dad just turned around to me and he said, you found the presents, haven't you? I found and my, my brother said no, no and it, but it, it's funny whenever I watch those things about murderers wanting to return to the scene of the crime and it's always because and serial killers always want to get caught I always think about my brother and the, and the year that he he ruined Christmas Christmas well Christmas is a time for the family uh, you'll have noticed listeners that uh, this 
episode of that listed is even more circumlocutory than usual. Loose. It's Christmas Day. <laughs> Come on, cut us some slack. The book we're discussing, you already know, is Ballet Shoes by Neil Stroopfield. It's first published by J.M. Dent in 1936, and it's now generally acknowledged as a classic of children's literature. But before we slip on our point shoes and start on the battlement and plie, John, what have you been reading this week? I've been reading a novel from 1968, children's novel from 1968, something I haven't read since I was a child, and I've always wanted to go back to and read, and it's called The Giant in the Snow by John Gordon. A fantastic, fantastic jacket. I love it because it's, it's very good on cold. It opens. I'm going to read a little bit. It's now clearly what you would call the, the, the early stirrings of what we would now call folk horror. It was written in 1968. John Gordon was a writer for the Eastern Daily News in Norwich. It's about three kids who find a, a buckle in an ancient site, and it turns out that that buckle is extremely important to the gathering darkness that's out there. It's just before Christmas. It's snowy. It, this is really like a combination of The Dark is Rising and Elidor because it's also set in the back streets of, of kind of bombed out Norwich and kind of strange alleyways and kind of old warehouses, but very similar kind of vibe to Elador, very similar vibe in the snowy bits in, in the countryside to The Dark is Rising. It's not an entirely successful novel. There's a strange <laughs> witch-like woman called Elizabeth Goodenough who's in there who doesn't quite, never quite really get to grips with what she is or what she does or what her powers do. They also, the children, she gives them all little backpacks that enable them to fly, which is a little bit, it's a little bit jetpacky, let's be honest. Although he writes so beautifully about the, the flying and Norwich from the air in the countryside from the air. The great joy of the book is, 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 is his prose. I really, really enjoyed it. And I, I, I'm guessing it's, it's long out of print. I think it was reissued by Orion a few years ago. But I'll just read you a little tiny passage just to give you the the feel. As I say, the, the culmination is on Christmas Day, if you like. I, I do like that kind of thing. Um, and it does it very well. So this is John Quill. She's got separated from the school party. They're, they're on a, a coach has stopped for a, what would now be called a comfort break. Probably wasn't called that in, um, in 1970, in 1968, where children didn't have trainers, but gym shoes. Apparently that, that was one of the changes Orion made for the revised edition. Get me started. Anyway, here we go. Jonk looked round her. The copse was on a very low, flattish mound, so regularly shaped it may have covered the ruins of a small building, a real temple perhaps, but four or five ridges splayed out from it, like the spokes of a wheel or the rays of a sun shape. Jonk counted them, four straight ones and one shorter and bent. Not a wheel, more like a gigantic hand with trees thrusting up between the fingers. If it closed on her, the thought made her jerk her head up. Her hair was wet now. It hung in dark strings to her shoulders and made a spiky fringe across her forehead. Her imagination was trying to frighten her, but she would not be beaten. She would circle the cops. The horn bleated again, nagging like Miss Stevens. It was a sudden spurt of anger more than anything else, that made Jonk stride into the V of the grassy ridges and stoop to pick up the glinting object. But as her hand reached for it, she paused. The object was like a shiny yellow ribbon twisted in upon itself, a clutch of worms wintering under the soil. No, it was metal. She pulled a fern leaf, doubled it to make it stiff, 
and poked the object clear. It was circular, about the size of a palm, and was composed of metal ribbons that twisted and writhed among themselves in an endless pattern. It looked like a brooch, perhaps an old one, perhaps gold. Certainly, it was a discovery. She'd been right to visit the Temple of Trees. She picked it up, crumbling the earth from its crevices as she turned it in her hands. There was a distinct pattern to it, and in the middle of the interwoven gilded strips was a shape like a man stretched upright with his legs together and his arms outstretched. His head was a loop of metal. Now she would go back. The green hand had given her a gift. It no longer seemed unfriendly. Jonk smiled slightly as she bent to brush the brooch in the grass of one of the ridges. The grass was short and fine, and beneath it the earth was spongy. She pressed it and it gave. Another landslip? More treasure? She was about to press again when the turf dimpled, as though it was going to split of its own accord and save her the trouble, but it did not crack. A ripple ran the length of the ridge, and suddenly, with a soft sound, almost like a sigh from underground, it humped itself in the middle. Jonk jerked back. The movement stopped. The ridge was absolutely still. The hump in the middle was very low, and may have been there all the time. Stooping may have made her giddy, and she'd imagined it. But she was afraid. She was able to admit to herself that she was afraid. It was time to go. And on we go. The, the giant in the, under the snow, John Gordon, really cracking, cracking book. Beautiful. And has stood the test of time, I think. The language in it is, is beautiful. Andy, what have you been reading? Thanks, John. I've been reading a novel called The Death of Grass by John Christopher. Um, this was recommended to me by a backlisted listener and also who is also a bookseller at Waterstones in Liverpool. Uh, thanks, Kieran. Merry Christmas to you. Uh, I went in, I said, I want something that is going to make me stare into the bleak heart of every human being. Uh, this particularly festive time. Yes, I've got to do this show about ballet shoes. I've got, to, I need the antidote. What is it? And Kieran said, I recommend The Death of Grass. And Kieran, you were dead right. This is quite the bleakest and most miserable and thrilling book that I've read for years. It is Fantastic. I, I suspect Una McCormack, you know, you've probably read this, haven't you? Or you know, I've read it a long John time ago. Is. Yeah, yeah. You should, if you want to, if you want to go from that one, read Empty World, which is uh, John Christopher's young adult pandemic novel. So that'll cheer you up. <laughs> well, it's funny you should say that because uh, this is about a pandemic as well. The Penguin edition that's currently available has an introduction by our former Christmas episode guest, Robert McFarlane who says of The Death of Grass, this novel is remarkably prescient. John Christopher's worries at the impact of human activity on the environment were a decade ahead of their time, and his account of pandemic panic was prescient by half a century or so. I'm going to do the backlisted thing and read the blurb. Look, I've got, I got out of um, Central Library here in Liverpool uh, an original hardback of The Death of Grass. Can you see on the cover there's just like a, a skull yeah, you know, the skull beneath the skin. Merry Christmas, everyone. Um, this is the blurb of the, the Death of Grass. The Death of Grass recounts the terrifying changes on the face of the earth when the balance of nature is upset. And it takes place not at some unspecified date in the future, but in the present. The characters are pleasant, middle-class people who live serenely until the grass begins to die, upon which their personalities begin to change. Life in England 
becomes a desperate struggle for survival, and following their fortunes, the reader becomes personally involved. Oh my goodness, this novel is like a cross between, I mean, it's very much in the, it has the feel of The Day of the Triffids by John Wyndham, and Robert McFarlane compares it to Lord of the Flies. I could see that's true. So there's a kind of Lord of the Flies meets The Day of the Triffids. But I tell you the, the story and film that it really reminds me of is the Ealing film based on a story by Graham Greene called Went the Day Well, which yeah. is uh, a wonderful, wonderful story and film about what seemingly nice human beings are reduced to very quickly if they have to fight to survive. I'm going to read you a, a, a little bit here, which will give you a flavour of how good this book is. OK, so it's going along quite well near the beginning, and they're talking about what the ramifications of a, a loss of wheat and barley will be to the planet and what it will, what it will cause to happen to um, food supplies. And then in the next chapter, they say, but the thing is, there's a new government in power, and they plan to drop hydrogen bombs on all the major cities in Britain to kill people early rather than let them starve to death. It's like John Christopher has gone, I need to raise the stakes. What can I do? <laughs> Our heroes who are called John Custance, Roger Buckley, their families, and a, a, a very unpleasant man called Piri, an unpleasant and violent man called Piri, are attempting to get from London to John Custance's brother's farm in the Dales, where they hope to hole up with weapons until civilization has returned to normal okay so here we go <laughs> they had expected to be stopped on the roads by the military and with that possibility in view had devised three different stories to account for the northward journeys of the three cars the important thing john felt was to avoid the impression of a convoy but in fact there was no attempt at inquisition a considerable number of military vehicles on the roads were interspersed with private cars in a normal and mutually tolerant traffic after leaving Saxon Court, they made for the Great North Road again and drove northwards uneventfully throughout the morning. In the late afternoon, they stopped for a meal in a lane a little north of Newark. The day had been cloudy, but was now brilliantly blue and sunlit, with a mass of cloud rolling away to the west, poised in white billows and turrets. The fields on either side of them were potato fields planted for the hopeful second crop. Apart from the bareness of hedgerows empty of grass, there was nothing to distinguish the scene from any country landscape in a thriving, fruitful world. The men, sitting in Piri's Ford, discussed things. John said, if we can get north of Ripon today, we should be all right for the run to the valley tomorrow. We could get farther than that, Roger said. I suppose we could. I doubt if it would be worth it, though. The main thing is to get clear of population centres. Once we're away from the West Riding, we should be safe enough from anything that happens. Piri said, I'm not objecting, mind you, nor regretting having joined you on this little trip, but does it not seem possible that the dangers of violence may have been overestimated? We have had a very smooth progress. Neither Grantham nor Newark shown any signs of imminent breakdown. Peterborough was sealed off, Roger said. <laughs> Peterborough was sealed off. No change Roger there. said. I think those towns that still have free passage are too busy congratulating themselves on being missed to begin worrying about what else may be happening. You saw those queues outside the bakeries? The trouble is, said John, that we just don't know when Welling is going to take his drastic action. It's nearly 24 hours since the cities and large towns were sealed off. When the bombs drop, the whole country is going to erupt in panic. Atom bombs and hydrogen bombs, Piri said thoughtfully. I really wonder. Roger said shortly, I don't know. I know Haggerty. He wasn't lying. 
It's not on the score of morality that I find them unlikely, said Piri, but on that of temperament. The English, being sluggish in the imagination, would find no difficulty in acquiescing in measures which, their common sense would tell them, must lead to the death by starvation of millions. But direct action, murder for self-preservation, is a different matter. I find it difficult to believe they could ever bring themselves to the sticking point. We haven't done so badly. There's been, there's been a string of murders at this point, incidentally. <laughs> he grinned. <laughs> you particularly. My mother, Piri said simply, was French. But you failed to take my... <laughs> you failed to take my point. I had not meant that the English are inhibited from violence. Under the right circumstances, they will murder with a will and more cheerfully than most. But they are sluggish in logic as well as imagination. They will preserve illusions to the very end. It is only after that that they will fight like particularly savage tigers. Wow. Merry Christmas, one and all. Bless us, Merry everyone. Chris, bless us, everyone. <laughs> oh, so that is The Death of Grass by John Christopher. It is in print. I thought it was sensational. Thank you very much, uh, Kieran in Liverpool, who recommended that to me. It was perfect for my Brilliant. purposes. The Fothel sisters lived in the Cromwell Road. At that end of it, which is farthest from the Brompton Road, and yet sufficiently near it to be taken to look at the dolls' houses in the Victoria and Albert Museum every wet day, and if not too wet, expected to save the penny and walk. Book of the Death of Grass uses the same music. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Andy. Ballet Shoes. Ballet Shoes is a children's novel that tells the story of the three fossil sisters, Pauline, Petrova, and Posey. Each of them has been collected by an itinerant paleontologist they know as Gum, an acronym for Great Uncle Matthew, and they grow up under the care of his great niece Sylvia in his slightly shabby house in the Cromwell Road in London. Money is tight, and Sylvia must take in boarders. Luckily for the girls, these comprise a garage owner, a retired English professor, and a dance teacher, who all play a part in educating the girls and encouraging them to attend the stage school run by the formidable Madame Fidolia, a former prima ballerina of the Imperial Russian Ballet. Much of the book's charm derives from the way Stretfield allows each of the sisters to find their own way to fulfil their own particular talents. Pauline as an actress, Petrova as a scientist and mechanic, and Posey as a ballet dancer. I wish listeners could see the look on Nikki Birch's face of utter <laughs> relaxation and bliss. <laughs> I'm so looking forward to this hour. It's all oh, I can say. Right. Me too. Me too. <laughs> so why is ballet shoes uh, important? Well, in, for historical reasons, it, 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 it was an immediate bestseller on publication. Um, it was runner-up for the inaugural Carnegie Medal. And I think it's, it, I mean, we all know it's a classic of children's literature. It's never been out of print. And it was the first in a series of many 
uh, shoes books by Noel Stretfield, although she tried, didn't she, to call them other things, but then yeah. the publishers <laughs> called them circus shoes, theatre shoes, party shoes, movie shoes, skating shoes. I mean, shoes, shoes, shoes is the message here. It's been adapted many times, both as an audiobook and for film and television, including a classic 1975 BBC series and a rather less successful 2007 <laughs> adaptation starring Emma Watson seems a bit unfair to single out Emma Watson, John, as the, as the cause of the, of the failure of that film. Just, but, you know, just facing it for people. It, I quite like that yeah, one. Yeah. <laughs> it's Do a Victoria okay. Wood, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I think Mark Warren is uh, woefully miscast as, yeah. as, as Nana. <laughs> Thoughts, Nikki Birch? No, absolutely. It was a heinous adaptation. Thank it's you, never Nikki. Been done. Thank Strike you, it off. Thank Strike you. it off. Strike it off. <laughs> Nikki is the arbiter on all matters ballet shoes on yeah. this episode. You realise? Yes, indeed. In 2019, BBC News included ballet shoes on its list of the 100 most influential novels of all time. Not even children's novels, but novels of all time. Quite yeah. right, too. So let's start with the familiar blacklisted question. Tanya, I will ask you, when did you first read ballet shoes? So uh, I, I read my, I read the copy that my mum had owned, which she then handed down to my elder sister. And I know it was before I was nine and a half because I bought at a jumble sale my own copy because of sibling rivalry. And it's got in the front Tanya Jeanette Kirk, uh, age nine and a half, 1992. And I looked at some flowers. So, So I know I read it before I was nine and a half. It's been read many, many times. So, Tanya, you were nine and a half and... Were you a girl who was, were you into ballet? I was. I was not good. Uh, I have not ever had the physique for ballet. <laughs> but I did um, I did do ballet as a little child. And, you know, the, like the dream of being good at it was there. I just knew it was never going to happen. It's Christmas. It can, everything can come. <laughs> your dreams can come true. It created a craze, though, didn't it? Yeah, there was like a major, like 1930s ballet was massive in the UK, I think. So does the book cause the craze or does the craze lead to the book? I think the the craze led to the book. I think um, the editor at Dent asked yeah. Noah Stretfield to write a book about the theatre and right. the children and uh, ballet was so huge. And she'd seen... Um, Dame Lynette de Valois dance on Eastbourne Pier when she was a child and had kind of loved it since then and I think just kind of went with it. Una, when did you read Noel Stretfield's work first time? Did you start with ballet shoes as well? Oh, I read so many of them. You know, that that period when you're reading from about, what, 8 to 13 or whatever it is, where you, 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 you're just reading everything. You don't really distinguish the books that you're reading in a way. I can date this. I've got, I've got that BBC tie-in yeah. edition as well, um, and I can date it. This is my copy in Beautiful Nick. I can date it. It's got 1981, so I was probably about nine and a half as well. And uh, the blurb at the front says uh, that Ballet Shoes is warmly recommended for girls between eight or nine and 14. So that was Kay Webb's kind of... Uh, Se- sexist Kay uh, Webb. Sexist Kay Webb, yeah. <laughs> Readers of all genders and ages, yeah. I think we would say. So that. look, we're, we're very lucky to have three members of this panel who've been reading ballet shoes since they were children. I think John and I need to provide balance <laughs> 
<laughs> Sean, when did you first read Ballet Shoes? Uh, I read it last week, Andy. Um, and <laughs> I, I'm, I'm the same, and I, I apologise for my blinkered sexism in not reading it before, for thinking this was, as Kay Webb suggests, a book for girls. I, I, I hadn't read it before last week, and um, I really, really enjoyed it. It's so much fun really? and so socially specific as well, yeah. which I'm sure is one of the things we'll talk about. Yeah, John, what did you make of it? Uh, I absolutely loved it and um, also read uh, the, uh, the Vicarage Family, which I, because I, you know, grew up in a vicarage. So it was, I mean, I, fascinating. And I also have been devouring Angela Bull's biography of Mel Stretford, which is really, really good, really good work. There it is. I just, yeah, it's, it's, Again, it's it's it is odd, isn't it? I mean, I I read I had read as a kid Thursday's Child, uh, which is Noel Stretford, and I had definitely been. I'm pretty sure I saw the TV adaptation of Ballet Shoes because the the story was enough of the story to 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 feel familiar. But I love reading classics like this because they're so odd. It's such an odd book. It's such a very specific 1930s kind of setting. You know, kind of weird, right? Old professor collecting babies and just, I, I mean it's, just, yeah. it's not exactly what I was expecting I don't think this book is massively about ballet either it's at least as much about acting yeah, um, yeah I think the title is a really I mean yeah. it's obviously like a marketing thing the main character isn't the main character kind of Petrova I don't oh, that's interesting. there's much more about her and how she kind of doesn't fit in and she's almost like the kind of um Stratfield really likes writing about girls that don't fit in. Yeah. It's kind of her thing. Also, I think the ballet shoes are kind of weird because there's this whole theme about how the the children want to um, make something of themselves that's that they've not kind of drawn on their like family history for. They've done it themselves. They've not uh, yeah. they've not used any kind of nepotism or anything. But Posey inherits the ballet shoes from her mum, so <laughs> so it's so she kind it kind of is uh, like undermining that point i think it's a weird title i always have well listen for one young woman opportunity knocks because nikki birch please would you read to us from ballet shoes so we can get a little flavor of um what tanya uh it was talking about just then what do you know what that's an absolute pleasure i'd love to <laughs> i'm going to read from a section which I think explains a bit of the background to the story. So um, hopefully it gives you the scene, the setting. The three sisters, Pauline, Petrova and Posey. Pauline is at home ill. Petrova and Posey have probably gone on one of their many walks that they have to have <laughs> each day. Save a penny. Save a yeah. penny and walk. And uh, so she's in the house. And in the house, they have a, a load of boarders, a.k.a. lodgers, and uh, she hasn't really met them all yet. So they, they haven't gone to ballet school or anything like that. So this is just, so Pauline is at home and she's ill and uh, she's sitting on the stairs. At that moment, the door behind her opened and a head popped out. It had a shawl round it. And for a moment, Pauline was not sure who it was. Then she recognised that it was one of the lady doctors, the one whose surname was Jakes. Dr. Jakes looked at Pauline. My dear child, what are you doing there by yourself? I've got a cold, Pauline explained stuffily, as she'd come down without her handkerchief, and the others have gone out without me and I haven't got anything to do. Dr. Jakes laughed. You sound as though you have got a cold. So have I. As a matter of fact, 
Come in, I've got a lovely fire, and I'll lend you a large silk handkerchief, and I'll give you some ginger drink, which is doing me good. Pauline came in at once. She liked the sound of the whole of the invitation. Besides, she'd not seen the inside of the two doctors' rooms since they'd been boarders' rooms instead of homes for gums fossils. As a matter of fact, this one had changed, so she felt it was a new room altogether. It owned a rather shabby wallpaper, but when the border idea started, it was distempered a sort of pale primrose all over. But the primrose hardly showed now, for the whole wall was covered with books. My goodness, said Pauline, walking round and blowing her nose on the scarlet silk handkerchief. Dr. Jakes, Dr. Jakes provided. You must read an awful lot. We have a big bookshelf in the nursery, but that's for all of us and Nana. Fancy all of these just for you. Dr. Jakes came over to the shelves. Literature is my subject. Is it? Is that what you're a doctor of? More or less. But apart from that, books are very ornamental things to have about. Pauline looked at the shelves. These books certainly were grand looking, all smooth, shiny covers and lots of gold on them. Ours aren't very, she said frankly. Yours are more all one size. We have things next to each other like Peter Rabbit and Just So Stories and they don't match very well. No, but very good reading. Pauline came to the fire. It was a lovely fire and she stood looking at the logs on it. Do you think Peter Rabbit good reading? I would have thought a person who taught literature was too grand for it. Not a bit. Very old friend of mine. (laughs) (laughs) Pauline explained that they don't go to school anymore. And she said, why is that? You see, Gum, great uncle Matthew, he said he'd be back in five years and he isn't. And who exactly is Gum? Dr. Jakes poured things out of various bottles into two glasses. Pauline hugged her knees. Well, he's called Gum because he's Garney's great-uncle Matthew. He isn't really a great-uncle of ours because we haven't any relations. I was rescued off a ship. Petrova is an orphan from Russia. And Posey's father is dead and her mother couldn't afford to have her. So we've made ourselves into sisters. We've called ourselves Fossil because that's what Gum called us. He brought us back instead of them, you see. I see. Rather exciting choosing your own name and your own relations. Yes. Pauline saw the kettle was nearly boiling and looked hopefully at the glasses. We almost didn't choose Posy to be a fossil. She was little and stupid then, but she's all right now. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Jakes got up and took the kettle off the fire and poured the water onto the mixture in the glasses. And at once there was a lovely, hot, sweet smell. I do envy you. I should think it an adventure to have a name like that, as sisters by accident. The three of you might make the name fossil really important, really worthwhile. And if you do, it's all your own. Now, if I make Jake's really worthwhile, people will say I take after my grandfather or something. Pauline sipped her drink. It was very hot. She looked at Dr. Jake's over the rim of the glass. Do you suppose me and Petrova and Posy could make Fossil an important sort of name? Of course. Making your name worthwhile is a very nice thing to do. It means you must have given distinguished service to your country. Oh, I, Nikki, wow. I, just, I just want you to read the whole thing now. I just want you to read yes, the whole please. thing. Yes, so please. I'd, <laughs> I'd settled yeah. in comfortably there. That's yeah. so great. Sorry, it was rather long, but I enjoyed it. You know, John, it hadn't occurred to me before, but um, when Nikki was um, setting up that wonderful reading, in a sense, Ballet Shoes is um, in the tradition of that great 30s genre, the boarding house novel, yeah. such as Patrick Hamilton. I mean, it's not like Patrick Hamilton. <laughs> <laughs> it's exactly Clearly, right. but... It's a- <laughs> But it is in that genre, yeah, isn't it? It's the idea of a, a mixture of people who, for reasons of it, 
poverty or, yeah. or misfortune are, are forced to rub along together yeah, to create something bigger than themselves. I mean, Ghani's struggle with her accounts. There's no book I've read recently is better about money and not having enough money and trying to work out how, how to prioritise and what to spend it on and how to keep something back for yourself. And, you know, the obsession with <laughs> that obsession with the savings bank, always having to put money in the savings bank and that well, yeah. it's I, I I found all of the detail in it completely. There's uh, pages and pages amazing. of just doing calculations, yeah. isn't there? Yeah. Like we got you know we've got threepence halfpenny for this, and that means we can put a shilling over here. But that shilling we need to bring back later on in the year to do X, Y, and Z. It's just, I mean, it's paragraph after paragraph of it. I think, and of course the obsession with clothes and you know the letting, obsession with clothes is amazing. Yeah, <laughs> letting them out, making them again, yeah, yeah turning them of. over and. Yeah, what the yeah. Organdy. <laughs> Weird or, or, and wonderful word. Tarleton. Or words like that. <laughs> so is there a thing going on, Una, where let's say the young readership, which has been traditionally predominantly female, what elements of wish fulfillment are going on? If it isn't ballet specific, what is it? Um, so I I read a lot of Stretfield. I didn't just read this one, I read a lot of other ones like Apple Bow and White Boots and uh, a lot of them. And actually, the wish fulfillment aspect of Stretfield, for me, is that the grown-ups listen to the children. When the children express what they need and want, the grown-ups sit and go, that's, that's okay, all right, I hear you. How do we make that happen? Or, okay, I hear you, I've got to be honest, I don't think that's likely because of X, Y, and Z. But the wish fulfillment was was completely that the grown-ups listened. There's a, there's a line in Gemma, one of the Gemma books, that I always come back to. And one of the kids is explaining to their uncle uh, something that he wants, an ambition for his, his art. Uh, and there's just a single line, which the grown-ups, his uncle Philip, a single line, it's Philip understood. Grown-ups wow. can understand. <laughs> and and I think, I think that's actually the wish fulfillment in Nolstra. All the arts and stuff. You know, skating or ballet, you enjoy maybe that. You see that there's hard work, a bit of talent, a bit of luck. She's sort of truthful about it, but it's about the grown-ups listening. So I kind of get a, a different thing from it. I, I felt like the thread that runs through it is uh, for the wish fulfillment is that you just being like recognised for being really good at something. And I think one of the things hmm. that she does really well is like awful uh, parent figures who <laughs> who don't listen and understand. I mean, there are definitely ones that do try and understand, but um, there's some really brilliant, hilariously awful ones like uh, Aunt Claudia in White Boots. Oh, she's dreadful. Yeah, she's yeah. so dreadful. So she's yeah. obsessed with her niece becoming this champion figure skater because her brother, the aunt's brother, the dad of the of Layla, had. Um, been a champion figure skater and then and then like fallen through the ice and died in a tragic accident and she frames his skates that he was wearing when he died and puts them on the wall and <laughs> um makes her look at them and it's yeah. awful actually i reread that recently and harriet's parents are pretty hopeless too aren't they because they're yeah. they're kind of getting by on some ridiculous like his older brother gives them dodgy game from like the lettuces estates. and stuff yeah and they're yeah. kind of going, but don't worry, Olivia's going to come into a bit of money one day. And that's kind of what they're, they're, they're also pretty, pretty hopeless. There's lots of like really ineffectual adults yeah. as well. She's definitely. I think she's clear eyed about adults. Yeah. Isn't that what's interesting, though, about ballet shoes is there are no parents. 
Yeah. These no. girls have no parents, and and they kind of choose. That's that lovely bit that you read, Nikki. They got they get to choose in a way their parents, and they get to choose their name, and they get to choose their kind of destiny. Uh, it's quite a subversive book if you if you read it on that point of view, and you you feel this growing tension out there of the depression of of you know you get little hints of it from Mr. Simpson not being able to go back to Kuala Lumpur. Uh, you know, and and to ha- having to open a garage in London, and the, the, the sense that the money, you know, the, the the bills are going through the roof, and and Garney Sylvia can't can't keep on top of it. I also love the authenticity, the fact that they pr- reproduced the license, that that whole thing of going to yeah. County Hall. It's actually an authentic document that you have. That you, it, and I, as a kid, I, you know, you would love that. What? And I can imagine. I mean, as much as wanting to, to to go and do ballet lessons, people wanted to go on the stage and to. I could earn money. I could help mum and dad out by going and 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 be going on the stage. I also think there's something going on. There's a kind of proto uh, pop group thing going on. They're called the Fossils, right? <laughs> I mean, that in, in and of itself is a brilliant name. Yeah. But also because they because they have different specialisms and they 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 come from different places. They are like a little band, and it really reminded me of a, a story about when the TV sixty TV series The Monkeys was first launched. They made a pilot episode which. Um, wasn't a success and they realized why the pilot wasn't a success even though it had the same actors who go on to be in the in the huge hit series later in the 60s because they had a manager figure hanging around they had a parental figure hanging around yeah as soon as they took that guy out the series mm-hmm. takes off and it's sort of That's similar very, with this yeah. right there are parents around but as una was saying very perceptively i think the the fact that they listen to the kids allows the girls to be themselves, to make their own decisions and take responsibility for their own actions and be the gang and be the band and be the fossils, you know. Hey, hey, we're the fossils. She does a series of books which are a band, the Gemma books, uh, Gemma and Sisters. It's a it's a family band. So she she does go on and do that. <laughs> does she? Love it. I'm making a note, Una. I'm making a note. <laughs> Can I ask you, Una and Tanya, when you read this, one of the things that it sets you up for is to feel that you you have to be a thing, right? Because yeah. nobody just is themselves or, you know, nobody just kind of goes on to an average life. You're either a very famous pilot or a very yes. famous actress or a ballet dancer. <laughs> and that is the same in all her books. And there's a sense of like, how did I never be, you know, I, as a child, yeah. you, you assume that this is your path to success. Did you feel like that? So, yes. Uh, yeah. Slight failure. <laughs> but but the one I always identified with was Winifred. Oh yes. Oh, oh yes. Always. Who's just a brilliantly drawn, brilliant character. Side character. Yeah. Wearing brown. And genuinely the talented <laughs> one. But Pauline will always get the part. She yeah. never had the looks, did she? Una? She never. She had never the had the looks. She never had the Latin. Yeah. <laughs> and that awful adaptation. From you know Fringe they... to Flying Circus. From Fringe yeah. to Flying Circus. I recognise that. Thank you very much, Una. In the in the awful adaptation, they make her into this sort of boss bitch figure, don't they? Who's yeah, kind of, that's a, yeah. The whole point about it is that she's sort of vulnerable and. She comes from a shonky family, and and it's it, I, yeah. she's. I, I agree. I think she's a. I think she's a brilliant character. But do you not find it funny how Noel Stratfield always always characterises? She's very obsessed with looks because Winifred, she's clever, but she doesn't have the looks. And and and, and Petrova, brown hair, brown hair, brown hair. People don't do very well in Noel Stratfield's books. <laughs> she loves ginger and she loves blonde. She was an extremist. 
Um, you mentioned Noel Stretfield herself yeah. there. I think we have some clips of Noel Stretfield. I wonder whether we could hear from her if there's a particularly appropriate soundbite. What turned you from acting to writing? The death of my father. He was by then Bishop of Lewis. And I thought, well, now with no home behind you, so to speak, uh, you really better do something safe. Mm. It's silly to go on being an actress. And I was just uh, travelling home that, at that moment just passing the Barrier Reef, I remember, from Australia, this is, you see. And I looked at the Barrier Reef and I thought, what shall I do? I can't go on being an actress. And suddenly it came to me like a flash that I'd be a novelist. Yes. What <laughs> made me think a novelist was a secure professional? <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I, that's solid gold. It's just brilliant. She's, she's gum, isn't she? Oh, she's she actually is more. gum. You know what? You know what? I'm going to break the format. Can we hear another one? Let's just hear. Let's just hear another one. That's you incredible. You want to hear about how she came to write ballet shoes? This is the this is the intervention of a okay, publisher. Let's do it. When did you start writing for children? In the 1930s. Yes. What? When a publisher came to me and said, "Would you write a book for children, rather like your first book, The Witch Arts, uh, Children on the Stage?" Mm. Of course, they couldn't be three illegitimate daughters of a colonel in a children's book, so. I didn't want to write it at all, but I did in the end sit down and write it. And I called it Barry Shoes, and that's where I was telling you before my sister illustrated it. Yes. Written, well, about 40 years ago, still a big seller, and a, a children's classic now. Yeah, I know. You're not supposed to be alive when, you, when there's a classic around. <laughs> How many copies have been sold? Over nine million. Nine million. <laughs> <laughs> wow! <laughs> Isn't that I, great? I, I, no, Stepfield. I, 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 think her, I think we might hear from her again uh, over, the, over the months ahead in uh, our Magnuson. Marvellous, Gil. Nine million. Nine, and that's in, that's in 1976. So, 70, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, incredible. I wonder what it's sold since. Although it's very of its time, I think that, that idea of listening to children, of people who come from, from un... un I don't know. The, their backgrounds are, are shady, aren't they? You don't really quite know what's happened, how they've ended up being being collected by 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 um, by gum. So they come from nothing, but they, it's it's a it's the it's an amazing book about self realization and ambition and you know, <laughs> and being kind and being you know. You know, Mitch. I nearly I've got written on a bit of paper here. Self realization has you... become a theme of ours since we did De Profundis. <laughs> yeah, There's the Oscar Wilde uh -oh. element uh -oh. of this. But I agree, I agree with you. Oh, You're absolutely you. right. Self realization is what is what the, the I, I would say the wish fulfillment is that really going yeah. back to that question. It's the well, if you have talent and you work, <laughs> the two things you've got to have talent, but you've also got yeah. to work. Yeah. And not a vast amount of talent because, you know, I mean, Posey is, Posey obviously we're told is sort of a genius, but, but Pauline is, Pauline's good. She's, you know, she's, she's going to be great. Um, but it's, it is hard work and poor Petrova's just, you know, but slogging she, out there. But, but she also, <laughs> she becomes technically one of the best dancers. I love that because she's really, she breaks down the problem and analyzes it. She's not feeling it, but she's, she finds her own way of, of, of dealing with it. She's professional, yeah. I love Noel Stratfield's insistence that she became a novelist for reasons of security. Yeah, I just, <laughs> yes. And then she says, whatever gave, me the, whatever gave me the idea of that, it was ridiculous. I have to say, I get the impression that she had largely a brilliant time. Yeah. I mean, I yes, know, you know, she's, she's yeah. bombed out and all this stuff, but 
And I know that the vicarage childhood is miserable. And, she, you know, when she's acting, she's living in kind of terrible digs in Derby and this kind of thing. But she always seems to be having, there always seems to be a party uh, about to happen or has just happened or she's, you know, uh, slightly squiffy from one. Uh, she sounds like she had a great time. Also, I'd like to say a bit about her career as a writer. Um, she was prolific. She wrote um, 30 books for children around about and 16 novels for adults, including, of course, Saplings, which was published in 1945 and republished to, by Persephone Books 10, 15 years ago, which is tremendous, really, really good book. And as we've said, you know, she... She either wrote sequels to Ballet Shoes or allowed the titles to be changed. So she wrote Ballet Shoes, Tennis Shoes, Circus Shoes, Theatre Shoes, Party Shoes, Movie Shoes, Skating Shoes. And she's also reputed to be the author of the six-word short story, For Sale, Baby Shoes, Never Worn. <laughs> and, and if she isn't, we're starting that rumour now. So yeah, let's get that one out there. <laughs> but let's, let's take it away from Hemingway and give it to Noel Stretfield. Yeah. The other one I read that I thought was really worth a look is called um, I Ordered a Table for Six, which has a kind of, uh, you know that a, a bomb is going to hit. It's set during the Blitz and you know a bomb is going to hit. Is that for, and you not, kind of, for children or adults? That's an adult one. Adult. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And you're kind of, it's a bit, bit Final Destination or Casualty. You're kind of going, who's, who's going to be standing okay. at the end of this one? So, um, But it's pretty good, I thought. Have you, you know, have you got something to read us from elsewhere in Stretfield's work then? Yeah, I, I, so I picked a little chunk from, we've, we've heard it mentioned already, and uh, she's mentioned it herself. I picked the opening of uh, her first novel, The Witch Arts, so that you could see where ballet shoes came from. Can you say why they're called The Witch Arts? They're, they're called The Witch Arts because they are fatherless children, but uh, they are well brought up by their own nana. Uh, and they know the Our Father, which art in heaven. So uh, as they don't know who their father is, they say, well, you know, Our Father, which art? So that's why they're called the witch arts. Which <laughs> so um, is very, very good. So I, I'm going to read you a little bit of this. And I think of it as like the mirror universe ballet shoes. Yeah, it's kind of like, it's okay, sort of yeah, like what, nice. you, what you think the story actually might be. So the witch art children lived in the Cromwell Road. At that end of it, which is furthest away from the Brompton Road and yet sufficiently near it to be taken to look at the dolls' houses in the Victoria and Albert every wet day, and if not too wet, expected to save the penny and walk. That's literally Save the same line. Yeah. Literally yeah. the same line. <laughs> Saving the penny and walking was a great feature of their childhood. Uh, this is where it starts to diverge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Our father, Mamie the eldest would say, must have been definitely a taxi person. He couldn't have known about walking or he'd never bought a house at the far end of the longest road in London. Our father, Tanya, the second child would argue, was a Rolls Royce man. His own, you know, I don't believe he ever hired anything. Their father was a legendary hero to the children. They knew so little about him and that little sounded so exciting. Our father would have done this or said that they would romance no story was too improbable for such a man. He'd been a soldier with many honours and even more mistresses. His first mistress, <laughs> or at least the one credited with being This is his where first, it diverges. Yeah. <laughs> was a Miss Rose Howard. She belonged to a most rigidly respectable family and was at that time 22. 
She met the brigadier, as she always called him, at a military ball. He was a captain in those days, newly married to a lady of such remarkable social eminence and blue blood that he was guaranteed a brilliant future. He saw Rose and fell in love. With the brigadier, to be in love was to make love. This Goodness. he did entrancingly. So entrancingly that he persuaded Rose to leave her family, her home, her respectability, and to live in the Cromwell Road <laughs> under oh. Oh. His, his guardianship. It is Patrick Hamilton. It is Patrick Hamilton, yes. <laughs> they, they live in non-conjugal bliss for eight years with the Brigadier popping in, uh, whereupon he, he leaves Rose, uh, breaks it off. But he does come back every so often to deposit on Rose a series of his bastard children, who are the Maisie, <laughs> Tanya and Daisy uh, of, of the book. Uh, and then, then he dies and Rose and Nana, who is there and calls them blessed lambs, bring up the three girls. So you've got your Garni and your Nana. And then Rose dies in a, in a sort of real <laughs> a bit of a shocker. And the kids are sort of thrown on their um, wits in many ways in a series of sort of depressing boarding houses. This is better than I could have ever hoped for. And the oldest one becomes kind of a sex worker. She, yeah, yeah. She's sort of kept in a... She's, she's a chorus what? girl. It's honestly very upsetting. <laughs> for a lover of ballet shoes. I told you, mirror universe. You're positing this as the... It's the true story. The mirror, mirror. <laughs> Or the inferno of the Stretfield universe. Absolutely. Or, or stiletto shoes, we might say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, so, wow. it, so it's not a great book. It's, it's very readable and enjoyable. It's, it's not very good. But somehow she lifts this and fair play to her. We've all done it. She kind of lifts this and goes, <laughs> I could do this as a kid's book. Yeah. So, okay. So, right, yes. right. Okay. So, ballet shoes, is, ballet shoes is the witches with the benefit of hindsight. Yeah. It's yeah, like yeah, saying yeah. I can I'm, revisit this, but yeah. I can I can make it feel warmer and it's like with the cynicism taken yeah. out and also mm. the the How kids amazing. are not that great at things in the witch arts and she makes she gives them like proper talents for ballet shoes. Yeah. And so she takes this germ of the idea and does what she stood out which is writing is children. Yeah. yeah, that makes me um, love it even more. But then, interestingly, she basically copies that and does the same book for the rest of her life. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. all of tennis shoes and white boots and curtain yeah. up, and they're all the same book. I'll just read you the beginning of. There's a Christmas story I have here. There's a, a volume of it seems appropriate. Noel Stretfield's Christmas Stories, which is published by Virago, um, called The Moss Rose. Um, and certain tropes. Uh, certain Stretfield tropes become apparent very quickly. But anyway, I'll just, I'll just give you the beginning of this story. Lavinia was wedged so tightly between the passages on the underground train that however much the coaches swayed, it made no difference. She just could not fall over. Not only was she squashed by passengers, but by parcels and suitcases. The parcels, even though they were wrapped in paper, trumpeted news of what was in them and what day it was. The foot of a turkey brushed Lavinia's cheek. A large square box marked fragile did not need to be opened to see the glittering Christmas tree ornaments inside it. What else could be travelling in a basin-shaped package on Christmas Eve but a plum pudding? Christmas Eve has a special feeling all its own, a mixture of excitement, hustle and bustle. Even the suitcases look Christmas Eve-ish, thought Lavinia. You can see they're lumpy 
because there are presents inside them, as well as clothes. But I bet nobody's got a more exciting suitcase than me. Just to be clear, she's she's heading to the Cromwell Road uh, at that point. <laughs> Cromwell Road is a it's the, the lodestone. Uh, it is. It's yeah. like it is very much. It's yeah. like sort of the, the 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 main artery of down which her imagination runs. Yeah. Do we have um? Do we have a little bit of a Christmas uh, excerpt from Ballet Shoes that we could hear from somebody? Has someone got that? Well, I could I could read a little bit if you want. Um, I'm... Yes, that would be great. Perhaps because they've been working so hard, Christmas Day seemed the loveliest day they had known. Nothing was very different from other Christmases, but somehow it seemed a particularly gay day. Their stockings bulged when they woke, and beside all the usual things in them, there were large white sugar pigs with pink noses and wool tails. When Nana came to tell them to get up, she had three parcels under her arm, and they, of course, had presents for her. Pauline had made her some handkerchiefs and Petrova a needle book full of needles, and Posy a blotter of two plaited paper mats stuck on cardboard. Nana had knitted each of them a jumper with a fluffy rabbit's wool round the cuffs and collars. Pauline's was blue, Petrova's orange, and Posy's pink. They all put them on for breakfast. On the breakfast table were chocolates for them from Theo. Everybody else's presents were waiting for the Christmas tree after tea. They went to church, even Posy, and sang Heart the Herald Angels, O Come All Ye Faithful, and the First Noel. They had been afraid that perhaps they would only get one that they knew, and the rest were some dull tune that was supposed to belong to Christmas and did not really. <laughs> the turkey oh, and plum lovely, though. The turkey and plum pudding and crystallised fruits and things they had for lunch, as Posy was not allowed to sit up for dinner. After lunch, Sylvia read to them while they did an enormous jigsaw that she'd got especially for Christmas afternoon. And then there was tea, <laughs> and Cook had made a most remarkable cake with a Father Christmas and reindeer on it, and as well, three large gold stars, which she said was what she hoped the children would be. Oh, <laughs> so, oh come on, it's lovely. Come on. It's just lovely. It is lovely. It is. <laughs> but she don't, you know. We were poor, but we were happy. Uh, and it's, but it, like you say, it's, it's not cynical. Um, it's, it's, it's heartfelt and very, very true. So let me ask those of you who've been reading Stretfield since childhood, Nikki, I'm going to ask you first, why does this keep going? Why, here we are in the year, whatever we're in, 2022, why hasn't this retired to the shelf? I think it's something that, something that Tanya mentioned, because my mother, it meant a lot to her, and she gave me the book, and it meant a lot to me, and I gave my daughter the book. And it's meant something to her, <laughs> and I and I and I. But I think that's part of it. I think there is definitely a handing this down from generations because some some books are so meaningful that you really want to to pass them on to the next, and particularly your children, your own things. So I think I think that's why it's it's had such a significant legacy. I completely agree with that. I mean, what that brought to mind was just that moment at the end that uh, you know where they turn and go, which one would you be? Or, or who who would you want to be mm. in this book? Invites you in. It's sort of you know it makes you part of that family. I think that you could be sitting at that table, enjoying that wonderful cake with homemade gifts. You're sort of invited into. You're enfolded into the family of that book. <laughs> it's like on the John Christopher blurb. It said <laughs> the reader becomes personally involved. Indeed. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Perry turns up as their new boarder. He does. I'm afraid I'm going to shoot you all in the head, girls. I am sorry. It's for your own good. 
Uh, Tanya, what what do you think? Why 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 are we talking about this here in the modern era? Because it doesn't feel like an old book. Does to me, it's packaged no. by Puffin as a almost like a contemporary, a classic. I get that, but 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 you know, it still speaks to its constituency. It's kind of about finding your niche. It's just back to the self-realization point again, mm. um, and um, kind of finding your people. And I think. So the one thing that I found really sad about it, the ending, is they all kind of go their separate yeah. ways and they get they get these amazing careers, but they're no longer a family in the same way. And I always found that really bittersweet. Yes, because, you, we, I mean, if you haven't read it, and we don't want to give stuff away, but they're heading to different countries to do different things, yeah. aren't they? Yeah. And also Posey's going to, to uh, Prague. Yeah. 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 In in 1937. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, all right. Don't get let's not get too dark. <laughs> yeah, she comes she comes back to that in a short piece. Have you read it, Tanya? It's a little piece called What Happened to Pauline Petrova. I haven't. Yeah. But I've read The Painted Garden, in which it kind of covers that uh they had to leave and they moved oh. to Hollywood. This little puffing collection called um Christmas with the Crystals. And it's a it's a sort of little chapter that I think was in a Christmas book that she did in the 70s, where clearly she's been sitting since the war going, oh, no, I sent poor old Posey off just before the <laughs> tanks rolled into the sedate land. And worst right. of all, I sent her with Nana, you know? Yeah, OK. Yeah. I think Nana yeah. would be useful in a conflict situation. So what is her reverse engineered solution? Then, yeah, what happens? The writer Noel Stratfield. They all meet for a holiday uh, just before the war breaks out. And Nana's saying, oh, do you know, I'm finding Prague terribly difficult. You can't get oatmeal and treacle. Uh, yes. And um, yes. Garney says, do you know what, Nana? I think I'll go back and you can go to Hollywood with Pauline. And then when the ballet company basically has to flee the tanks, uh, they kind of, um, they pack up and go to New York. So Pauline's making films, Posey's sort of dancing. And uh, Petrova, um, as we expected, is is flying yeah. planes in, is in the war effort. And of course, I knew I had to get them out of there. I couldn't leave the poor girl in. I couldn't leave the poor girl in Prague. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, this seems like a perfect moment. This being a backlisted Christmas episode to say uh, uh, it's time for the quiz. No, it's just for fun. Yes, it's just for fun, everyone. It's just for fun. I've got a quiz question for you, Andy Villas. So uh... all right, well you can you can drop that at the end. Okay. okay. All, right, all right. So what we've got this year's Christmas quiz, we've got uh, three rounds of a question each for our guests and our regulars, and then we've got a free for all at the end. Um, uh, I've tried to make sure the questions uh, are easy for the specialisms of each guest and each. And the enthusiasms of each member of the team. So uh, without further ado, here we go. One point per answer. Let's start with you, Nikki Birch. Nikki, in which teen classic is the young heroine told that if she wants to be one of the cool girls at her new school, it is essential she wear loafers with no socks? Oh, I don't know this. Loafers. I'll give you a clue because okay. it's Christmas Day. Thank you. You've already mentioned the author of this book Judy once Bloom. on this show. Okay. Yes, correct. Is it, are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. It is. Yay. It is. Thank you. One point. It's Judy Bloom. Are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. Well done, Nikki. Una, who is the author of the fairy story, The Red Shoes, adapted into the classic ballet film of the same name by Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger? It's... 
I'm so bad at quizzes. <laughs> is it Hans Christian Andersen? Good. As luck would have it. It yeah, is Hans Christian Andersen. Merry Christmas. You get a point. Thank Good. You. Well done. Tanya, which member or members of the group The Beatles wrote the song Old Brown Shoe, originally released in 1969 as the B-side to the Ballad of John and Yoko? George Harrison is the correct hey. answer. Merry Christmas. Yeah. You get a point. Well done. Good shoe quiz here, Andy. This is a shoe based quiz. You've spotted that. Good. John, please identify the author of the following short poem Is bliss then such abyss? I must not put my foot amiss for fear I spoil my shoe. I'd rather suit my foot than save my boot. For yet to buy another pair is possible at any store, but bliss is sold just once, the patent lost, none buy it any more. Say, foot, decide the point, the lady cross or not. Verdict for boot. <laughs> 19th century? Uh, yes. American. Yes, I was thinking. Oh. No, I'm going to open it up. Okay, anyone else know who that is? Whitman. Not Whitman. Tanya? Uh, is Bliss Burrow? then such a bis? No. <laughs> Nikki? I don't know. No. It's Emily Dickinson. Emily Dickinson. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Emily Dickinson. That's what it was, my next guess. Fuck yeah. <laughs> Emily Dickinson. Fuck, fuck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> fuck yeah. Right, exactly. Emily Dickinson. Okay, so out of round one, it's everyone's got a point except, I'm afraid, John Mitchison. Sorry, John. Uh, Nikki, okay. question to you. Who is the author of the book Shoe Dog, a memoir by the creator of Nike? Oh, what is that? And the creator? clue is in the title of the book. <laughs> by the creator of Nike. That's the, is, yeah, the first that, who set up that's Nike. That's the author of the book, um, yes. Shoe Dog, a memoir of the creator of Nike. I know that then the guy who set up Adidas was called Adolf, but I don't know the guy who set up but Nike. No, I'm afraid that's not <laughs> what I have on the card. <laughs> What's his name? Does anybody know who wrote Shoe Dog, a memoir by the creator of Nike? It's Phil Knight. Ah. Hmm. I bet that's trying to make book. that as easy as I could. I'm sorry, so sorry. Andy. Uh, Una, to you. In which episode of Star Trek, the animated series, oh, does Mr. Spock... <laughs> <laughs> Let's start that again. Una, in which episode of Star Trek, the animated series, does Mr. Spock request, amongst other things, a special pair of boots for his trip back in time to rescue his younger self? That's yesteryear. It is! <laughs> oh, my God. Such an excellent specialist knowledge. It's the, it's the only one people have seen. Okay, good. good. That's fine. That's a point. Congratulations. So next to Tanya. Tanya, here we go. And I, I think I'm confident you're going to get this. For one point, here we go. The British Library holds a copy of an early children's book published in London in 1765 by John Newbery and reputed to have been written by Oliver Goldsmith. For one point, please tell us its full title. Is it Tommy Thumb's Pretty Songbook? I'm no. afraid it isn't. I'm so sorry. I don't know what the answer is. This is my collection. This is terrible. <laughs> I'm going to be fired. I know. Sorry about that, Tanya. Well, we had fun. <laughs> we had fun on this episode, Ooh. didn't we? Anyway, 
So, okay, so the, the, its full title is as follows. The History of Little Goody Two-Shoes. Oh, no! Oh. I so nearly said that. <laughs> Otherwise called Mrs. Marjorie Two-Shoes, with the means by which she acquired her learning and wisdom, and in consequence thereof her estate, set forth at large for the benefit of those who from a state of rags and care, and having shoes but half a pair, their fortune and their fame would fix, and gallop in a coach and six. Brilliant. You were only offering a point for that. <laughs> I should yeah. have got it for the shoes, Link. Shoes. Una, that's the title. What can I do? That's the title. John, for a point. Which of Shakespeare's plays features the following exchange? Morellus, you, sir, what trade are you? Cobbler. Truly, sir, in respect of a fine workman, I am... But, as you would say, a cobbler. Morellus. But what trade art thou? Answer me directly. Cobbler. A trade, sir, that I hope I may use with a safe conscience, which is indeed, sir, a mender of bad souls. Ooh. Morellus. Uh, it's not two gentlemen um, of Verona. It's, it's, one of those, it's, one of those, it's one of those comedies, isn't it? Yeah. As you like it. I mean, it is funny, I grant you, but no, it's not one of those. No. It's not one of those comedies. Anyone? It's Twelfth not. Night. John hasn't got it, I'm afraid. Right. Twelfth Night. It's not Twelfth Night. No. Anyone? In what the exchange between Morellus and a cobbler? Anyone know when that appears? If it doesn't have Spock in it, um... Julius Caesar. <laughs> it is Julius Caesar. Yes! An extra point oh, for you. Good. That's good... excellent. Well, well thought through. Yeah, yeah. All right. It's the final. It's the final run. This is very exciting. I think Tanya's in the lead. Yeah. Is I she? Don't think no, I am. no, no, she's not. No, no, wait a minute. No, okay. I think it's All right. Two, two points Una's to Tanya, two. right? So Una's got, got two. two. Nikki's got one, and John has yet to Zero. register on the board. Okay. John's had right. really hard questions. He has, he has, but that we, he'd do the same for me. I would do the same. <laughs> okay, Nikki, final round. The shoe drawings of which iconic, and that is the correct use of that word in this context, 20th century artist. <laughs> were collected in a 1997 volume entitled Shoes, 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 the autobiography of Alice B. Shoe. I have no idea, Andy. Name an iconic 20th century artist. Andy Warhol? Andy Warhol. Tanya, it is Andy oh, Warhol. Yes, that is correct. Another point. Tanya oh, leapt and poached that point. Tanya, well I feel Very embarrassed. <laughs> okay, Una to Una. Third and final question for Una. Una, which best-selling science fiction novel, I would argue for younger readers, begins, I stare down at my shoes, watching as a fine layer of ash settles on the worn leather. This is where the bed I shared with my sister Prim stood. Uh, is it Blade Runner? Uh, do androids dream of electric sheep? It certainly no. is not. Anyone else know no, what that is? Chris, isn't it? Of course. It's it's um, it's one of the Hunger, Hunger Games. Games. It's it mocking, is one of the Hunger Jay. Games books. It is Mockingjay. Tanya, oh, Tanya racing away with this. I'm too old for <laughs> Hunger Games. <laughs> Bye, gum. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, what I should have said is Mockingjay or Ms. Mockingjay. Uh, being a, a, a sound mind in the little goody two shoes format, it's actually got a really long title, but sadly not. Tanya, this is your question. Tanya, we all know the author of the story The Boots at the Holly Tree Inn, first published in 1855 as the Christmas number of the magazine Household Worlds, is Charles Dickens. We all know that. 
<laughs> but can you tell me which of Dickens's novels began serialization in the same month, December 1855, and in the same periodical, not concluding until June 1857? Uh, um, you can see Mitch, <laughs> Mitch, champing at the bit. David Copperfield. I'm afraid it isn't David Copperfield. <laughs> John, over to you. Dombey and Son. It is not Dombey and Son. Una. M- Muppet Christmas Carol. <laughs> it is the Muppet Christmas Carol. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise known as Little Dorrit. Little it's Dorrit. Little Dorrit, I'm afraid. <laughs> okay, right. Okay, John, finally to you. Yeah. Here we go. It's an easy one. John, the Dr. Martin's boot is perhaps synonymous with the skinhead movement that originated in the UK in the late 1960s. The most infamous literary chronicler of skinhead fashion, music and violence was the late author James Moffat, a.k.a. Richard Allen, who between 1970 and 1980 penned 18 novels in the skinhead sequence. How many of those 18 novels feature the word skinhead or some variation thereof in their titles? <laughs> Not all of, of them. Of the 18. Come on, John. Come on, John. <laughs> how many? You don't even have to name them. Just how many of those 18 novels have at least, the word at least, skinhead? At least 10 of them. or It's either 10 or all of them. All. Go for all. I'm going to go for all. I'm afraid not, John. <laughs> Eight. Oh. And they are as follows. Yeah. Skinhead. Suedehead. Yeah. Skinhead escapes. Skinhead girls. Skinhead girls. Top Gear skins. Trouble skinhead. Dragon skins. And the elegiac skinhead farewell. <laughs> <laughs> the last in that great sequence. <laughs> it's a Roman fleur. Sure, it's I a Roman it. fleur. I, love I feel books. sad there wasn't one called Merry Christmas Skinhead, but unfortunately, that was by one. New English Library. Uh, but... Yes, they were indeed. Now I will open this up to everyone. You can bump up your scores. One point. This is a free for all. Just shout out your answers. One point for every one of the 10 remaining Richard Allen Skinhead novels you can name that don't have the word Skinhead in the title. Oh, Go. Bother Boots. God. No, but you're close. Monkey Boots. Close. Knights at the Circus. No. <laughs> flick, flick knife. <laughs> Ten holes. No. Um, it's really annoying. Welly Boots. DM Boots. Oh, you know, you know Nikki, you're, so, you're getting so... It, boot what? Boot, boot girls. Something. Boot boys. Boot boys. No. Struck. Who said boot boys? Me. I did. No, Nikki did. Nikki, no, that's you. Nikki. Boot boys. Okay. Uh, people at home will be screaming oh, this at yeah. their radios. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, day trips. Richard Allen. Mopeds. Day trips. Mopeds. <laughs> Actually, Nikki. Nikki's got the feel for this. She's on the roll, yeah. She really is. Okay, so they were as follows. Demo, 1971. Demo. Boot Boys, 1972. Glam, 1973. Glam, I should have got that. I've got that. 1973. Sorts, 1973. Teeny Bopper Idol, 1975. <laughs> Knuckle Girls, 1977. Oh. <laughs> Can any of you name another one that might have come out in 1977? Knuckle Boys. Jubilee. Jubilee. No, that's a good guess. No, yeah. but you're in the right punk. ballpark. Punk Girls. Nearly. Yeah. Punk rock, punk 1977. Rock. Okay. And finally, 1980, Mod Rule. 
So I'm declaring at the end of that sensational quiz, everybody won. <laughs> yeah. Because it's oh, Christmas. We're all winners. Yay. It's Christmas Hooray. Day. Well done. I've got a quiz question for you, Andy. Oh, yes, go yeah. on. Yeah, don't get me out my quiz question. So as we all know, the 1975 adaptation of Ballet Shoes was produced by John <laughs> Wiles, <Yeah>. second <laughs> producer of Doctor Who. But which yeah. Doctor Who story connects Madame Fidolia and Posey Fossil? Um, I'm going to say, that just saying something on air, is it the Reign of Terror? <laughs> no, it is not. Oh! Uh, what is sorry, it? you Tell got me. one wrong, Andy. So, I got one um, right, I got one wrong. Quite rightly, too. I deserved it. Posey is played by Sarah Prince, and Madame Fidelia is Mary Morris. And the story that connects them is Kinder. Yes, of course yes. it is. Yes, it is. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well done, Una, for getting Kinder into this episode. Good well. fact, hey. Right. Top well good done. Facts, Very one. good. There you go. God Very bless good. us, well, everyone. Why don't we hear why don't we hear from our, our I feel that our patron saint of this episode? Could we hear from Noel Stretfield again before we go? What are your writing habits, Miss Stretfield? I read my regularly every day. Yes. From about nine o'clock to lunchtime. And you write in bed, I'm told. Well, that was going back into my having left the theatre. You see, everybody used to say, oh, I've got tickets for this or that, or what about coming to this, and, you know? Mm. And you can't write a book that way, as you know. You've got to sit down and write. It's a very disciplined world. And so one day when someone was offering me something particularly tempting to go and see, I, instead of saying, no, I can't because I'm writing a book which no one believed anyway, <laughs> I suddenly took all my clothes off and got back into bed. And I thought, well, now I can't go out in the street, and that's the end of it. And I've been in bed ever since. <laughs> oh my goodness! That's uh, exactly that's exactly how I write. <laughs> I just took all yeah, my clothes I've off been, and went to I've, bed. I've, I've been, been in bed ever since myself. <laughs> you know, but, goodness, wonderful. Right. Well, I'm afraid we must now sadly say farewell to the fossils and to the redoubtable Miss Stretfield, and leave you to your all to your own celebrations. Huge thanks to Tanya and Una for allowing us to overindulge ourselves. To Nikki Birch both the initial inspiration and for making us sound like we're all gathered around the same figgy pudding. And of course, to Unbound for these lovely new organdy frocks. <laughs> you can download all 176 previous episodes, plus follow links, clips and suggestions for further reading by visiting our website, batlisted.fm. And we're always pleased if you contact us on Twitter and Facebook and now in sound and pictures on Instagram too. You can also show your love directly by supporting our Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash backlisted. What do you get for your money? Well, all patrons get to hear backlisted episodes early and ad-free. And for roughly the same as Mr. Simpson's advance against the value of the sisters' necklaces, those who have subscribed to the Lotlister level get two extra podcasts every month. It's called Lotlisted. Think of it as our own very own stage academy where we three work hard to learn, recite, rehearse and perform stories taken from the books, films and music we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight. That's exactly what it's like. That, that's not misrepresenting <laughs> it at all, John. Well done. Very good. And there is uh, actually a fabulous Christmas episode, isn't there, which is worth plugging because the Christmas episode so. are ones where um, all the patrons have um, suggested their favourite books that they recommend each other and it's spectacular. We loved making that episode, but that was one of our one of our favourites. It was it's really fun that episode. So anyway, uh, lot of listeners also get to hear their names read out on the show, 
as a mark of our thanks and appreciation. And today's festive Christmas Day roll call of new patrons includes Amy Wallen, Theo Henderson, Merrily Kincaid, Monica Dunkley, Johanna Lindsley, Laurie Harrenberg, Elizabeth Graboff. Thanks very much to all of you. Merry Christmas as well. Thank you. Before we go, uh, Tanya, is there anything you would like to add, we'd like to say about Ballet Shoes or Noel Stretfield that we didn't cover in the show today? I was thinking, because Christmas is obviously a time for telling ghost stories, there's this amazing, completely throwaway story in Noel Stretfield's biography by Angela Bull, which is, I really recommend, where they're talking about when Noel was a child in the living in the vicarage in Amberley in West Sussex and how she used to see a little girl wearing pantaloons around the place. And uh, it's kind of unexplained. And then the biography just says, and then they moved out. And then the people who lived there after them did some renovations and they discovered the skeletons of a mother and child behind the staircase. <laughs> and it's just completely left like that. There's no further explanation of any kind. <laughs> Moving on to Noel's life. <laughs> it's, again, it's just brilliant. Again, God bless us, everyone. <laughs> That's lovely. What a lovely, heartwarming story. <laughs> Una, anything you would like to add before we go? Oh, no, just uh, she continues. So I, I hadn't read it in a long time and I went back and enjoyed it a lot more than I expected. I, I went off on a bit of a kick of all of the ones I'd read as a kid. So it's been thoroughly enjoyable to go back to White Boots and Apple Bow and uh, The Circus is Coming. She's she's a lovely writer, with many charms. And Nikki, this was your special Christmas gift. Is there anything you would like to add that we haven't covered in the, in the episode? Just like to say thank you very much for doing that. It's lovely being me a little Christmas present. But Aww. I just wanted to reflect on one thing, which is the say because I listened to it so much. I the, the sayings there was she was very fond of using sayings. Nana always <laughs> does the sayings in the book, doesn't she? And mm. I thought I'd just leave you with a few of Nana's sayings. Let's hear them. Yeah. What the eye doesn't see, the heart doesn't grieve after. <laughs> very familiar. Obviously, a very important Noel Stretford message, pride comes before a fall. That gets repeated a lot. Yeah. And then my favorite one, which okay. is in tennis shoes, which I don't really understand, but I love it. Never keep a dog if you can bark yourself. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think that uh, the Queen's message to her Commonwealth there uh, on this special day. <laughs> So, Johnny, do we have anything we want to say as it's yeah. Christmas Day? If you're out there listening to this and you've got kids, the fossil bow, I think, is, 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 is puts it into the front rank of, you know, uh, of, of classics that give children the morals they should live up to. We three fossils bow to try and put our name into history books because it's our very own and nobody can say it's because of our grandfathers. That's, that's I love that. It's radical. Brilliant. Yeah, Happy yeah, Christmas. Great. Well, look, we'd like to wish all our listeners a very happy Christmas. Mm -hmm. And thank you for your, the incredible support that you've shown Backlisted this year. Another record-breaking, book-filled year for us. We mean it when we say we couldn't and wouldn't, however much we might wish to, do it without you. So <laughs> thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you so thank much you for so supporting much. us. Merry Christmas, Christmas. wherever Merry you are. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year, everybody. Thank you. Happy bye. Year. See bye. you. Bye. Bye, bye, bye. Bye, bye. Thank you.